you'll all please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father Yahweh, we come before you now, and we're so humbled when we approach your throne, your greatness and your power of this universe. We pray that what we would do here would be edifying to you and that your word would edify us as we dig into the depth of the word, that we know that our lives depend on you, that you give us meaning for life, and that we ask now for your guidance and for your strength and for your healing for those that have a special need. We know all these things we can ask of you believing, and you will grant it to us. So we thank you, Almighty Yahweh, for this day, this gathering, and this understanding that you give us in your word that we might be better servants of yours. This prayer and petition now we ask in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Special shout out to Kathy Henson, who's recovering from her surgery, and everything went well, I understand. Now comes the recovery, and that can be, that can be a, uh, a little bit challenging sometimes, especially in major surgery, but we praise Yahweh for that. Human nature is a fascinating subject. Many students take up psychology so they can learn about themselves and about others and how they tick. I think it'd be even wiser to open up the Bible to learn about others and how we tick because the Bible has all the answers there and everything in there is true. It's the focus of endless scientific studies. I mean, that's also the principal focus of Scripture. Yahweh's word teaches that it is a lifelong effort to change our natural desires, our natural pulls, and our sinful ways to reflect on the mind of Messiah and to reflect the mind of Messiah. Because of the allure of sins, all kinds of it is seen in human behavior, as we know. Just uh, look out, see what's going on in this world, and you'll say, yeah, there's, there's a lot of fallacy out there and a lot of uh, sin. But because Hebrews 11.25 says that man enjoys the pleasure of sin for a season, he'd rather go that direction and then find out he's not happy there either. But into the mix, Yahweh created some interesting differences between men and women. In fact, a lot of these differences stem from deficiencies in one or the other that is compensated by the other. So that a wife makes a husband complete and vice versa. And that's how Yahweh designed us. He said in Genesis 2.18 that it was not good for the man to be alone. See, Adam was incomplete. All these animals brought to him, and he couldn't find a real companion there because they were different from him, vastly different from him. Uh, the animals couldn't talk. The animals couldn't love. They were just animals. So Eve was the solution. Somebody like him in most ways. She made up for where he was deficient physically and emotionally. Take Freddie and Martha, modern couples. Freddie doesn't realize that he's sometimes a bit sloppy in, uh, in his home when it comes to keeping things tidy. So Martha, who's more savvy to neatness by virtue of her, her female sensibilities, points this out to him in a loving way. And so he corrects his deficiency in that area 
And that's the ideal, at least. Wife Martha, on the other hand, sometimes lets her adolescent children get away with a little too much because they play on her sensibilities and her female-enhanced feelings. That's when Fred steps in to explain to her the downside of emotion-driven discipline using a more logic-driven approach. When you understand how males and females are different in design and in attitude sometimes, it helps answer a lot of questions of why a husband and wife act as they do in various situations. It also helps to explain some challenges that they have in marriage when you realize the handicap each spouse brings to the union. Here's kind of a lighthearted look at some things that make men different from women. Phone conversations are over in 30 seconds. A five-day vacation requires only one suitcase and two pairs of shoes are plenty good enough. If another guy shows up at a gathering wearing the same attire as you, you just might become lifelong friends. Your buddies won't trap you with, so, you know us anything different? And you can do your own fingernails uh, with a pocket knife. I heard of an explanation why male and females differ. You see, men's brains are different. They're different. Men's brains are filled with separate little boxes. Each box holds a single idea or, or subject, independent from the others. So in a discussion, he pulls out that box, and that's where he reasons from. A single issue. The mind of the woman, on their hands, is like a big ball of wire. Everything is connected. It's all interconnected. So each issue is connected to many other issues. In a discussion, she'll bring in multiple things, whereas the man will focus basically on the one thing. Apparently, this analogy has a basis in fact, because medical science says that men have more information containing gray matter than women, but women have more white matter in their brains, which connects different parts of the brain. So she's all over inside the brain as uh, men are basically stuck with logic. Women also have bigger memory centers. And so what a powerful combination she's got. Think about it. She remembers everything. And it's fascinating to consider the differences between men and women, but they also share many similarities, as we know. We're all human, so we have humanness sharing, and that means they can both be guilty of transgressions and becoming uh, or unbecoming behavior. For instance, both men and women are by nature self-centered. We think of ourselves first. That's natural. Both are stubborn and unforgiving at times. Both need to overcome jealousies and envies. Both are suspicious by nature. You know, we are. We're suspicious. Of, I don't know about that, you know. And the difference is females have a heightened level of sensitivity. They tend to see things and are sens- sensible to things that men are blind to, which can make them even more suspicious. Both deny responsibility for their actions at times and blame others when things go awry. Well, typically when a person reaches senior citizen age, and I'm a case in point, to produce a real permanent change is very difficult. It's not impossible, but it's most difficult. And that's what conversion to Yahshua means. 
It means you've got to change your life. You've got to change your attitude. You've got to do a 180. It takes a pliable heart to want to do that. Having the mind of Messiah means being transformed from a natural way of thinking to an unnatural way for human beings. That don't, it doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally. It means overcoming spiritual shortcomings. It means controlling fleshly knee-jerk reactions whenever you're confronted with something distasteful. Focus on the bigger issues of life that really matter, not the petty stuff that we all have to go through every day. There's so much waste of time in this world that we have to deal with. If you've uh, ever faced a computer that has to have an update, and you've got to have a new, this is my bugaboo, you've got to have a new password, and you've got to remember what the old one is, and, and just go crazy with this stuff. And that's because people are dishonest, and they'll try to break into your computer. So they've got to keep changing things to keep them out. Once we start producing the fruit of the Spirit after baptism, the negative behaviors should start to diminish. A new creation begins, guided by the Holy Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit embody the mind of Messiah. Read the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, these things. This is the mind of Yahshua. This is how he is. 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of Elohim, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of Elohim. Many churchgoers and others are really skilled at separating their religious lives from their secular lives, let's say. They have two compartments, one religious, the other secular, worldly. Becoming like Yahshua means diminishing the secular or worldly and start taking up the mind of Messiah to grow spiritually. It's an ongoing, ongoing effort, and it takes deliberate and increasing determination. And as the world goes the other way, it becomes more and more a challenge. Paul sums it up in Romans 7.21. I find then a law. <laughs> he even takes it down to the law. I mean, it's, it's like true all the time. That when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of Yahweh after the inward man... I have a spiritual, I have a desire to follow him, to be like him. I really want that. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is my members. It, it ties you up, the law of sin, and like you can't go beyond he says, this is, this is what I'm dealing with. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank Elohim through Yahshua, Messiah, our master. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of Elohim. This is what I desire. I want to be part of his, uh, his family. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Imagine that. Delighting in the law in the New Testament. How about that? He's talking about laws of sin and laws of spirit. The flesh, aided by the evil one, keeps pulling us away from Yahweh. Our worship and our spiritual commitments 
keeps pulling us away. There should be no difference between how you believe and how you live. But that's not always the case. In fact, usually it's not the case. There's gaps. There's instances where you're being pulled away. Your spiritual life must be evident in your everyday life. And that's not easy. That's not easy when you're caught up in the aura of the world and all of the poles that it gives us. It should be seamless so that you can't tell the difference between the two. That's the ideal. That's the mind of Messiah. We spend an entire lifetime trying to achieve that. And it's not always simple. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, talks about spiritual circumcision. And Yahweh, your Elohim, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love Yahweh, your Elohim, with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Imagine that, love supreme in the Old Testament. Well, I thought that was a New Testament teaching. Yahshua taught love, yeah, and so did his father Yahweh in the Old Testament. Once you commit to him, the seed takes root. It's not going to happen unless you have a willing desire, a willing heart to go all the way with it. Living the truth is not just going through motions. It is there in what you stand for and what you do and what you believe. So the focus of my message today is 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who has known the mind of Yahweh that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Messiah. And what we're going to learn today is They're basically, Yasha's mind is Yahweh's mind. Romans 8, 5 to 7 in the New Living Translation. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. They're all wrapped up in the world. They think like the world. They laugh at the worldly jokes. They're they're just so caught up in it that uh, it's, it's so obvious. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. If your sinful nature controls your mind, there is death. But if the Holy Spirit controls your mind, there is life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to Elohim. It never did obey Yahweh's laws and never will. End quote. How about that? This is a New Testament reference, again, supporting Obedience to Yahweh's laws. The NIV translation is comparable. It says the sinful mind is hostile to Elohim. It does not submit to Yahweh's law, nor can it do so. New Testament. Denying the law is the, I call it the emperor has no clothes version of those rejecting Yahweh's statutes in the New Testament. There are over 1,000 commands 1,000 statutes, some 1,000 laws, injunctions in the New Testament that Yahweh expects us to adhere to. <coughs> some are, uh, are citations from the Old Testament, and others are direct. Come right out and tell us. All are plain and clear so that no one has any excuse of not obeying Yahweh. I don't care, Old Testament, New Testament, you obey Yahweh. That's the mind of Messiah. So plain, plain and clear. Matthew 3, 6 says, I am Yahweh, I change not. He doesn't change, flip-flop, going from one section of the Bible to another. He never changed. The same thing holds true. If you have the fourth edition, 
of the RSB, look up page 1451, you'll see 15 irrefutable passages about being obedient in the New Testament under Yahweh's law. Imagine, modern translations defining the sinful nature as anti-law. Well, if you want to read the 14th chapter of John with the, for an eye-opening journey into Yahshua's mind, I picked out a few passages. Verse 7, if you had known me, you should have known my father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. By seeing Yahshua, you've seen Yahweh. There's no difference. There's no difference. They have the same mind, the same goals, everything about them. Verse 10, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. Again, no difference. Verse 20, at that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. How? Through the power of Holy Spirit. Through the power of his Spirit. 21, he that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So when you're obedient, he opens up your mind to him. And you want to be more, more and more to be closer to him. Verse 23, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. You see, the great divide we find in life, the disastrous ways of the world that mount to disaster, the great divide the world gives us versus the perfect way of Yahweh, two opposites, two complete opposites. Yahweh's people share the Holy Spirit with Yahshua as you get, to get the Spirit, by the way, at baptism which is the active agent for both. It's how he created this world. Through the power of his spirit, the spirit brooded. Remember over the face of the deep? The spirit was working. Amazing energy to create something from nothing. It's it's a miraculous thing. The NIV in Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It takes a mind change. It takes effort. It takes a desire to change. Not just play the game. Not just do things because everybody else is doing them. Not just to be in with others. No, it means you are responsible for what you do. Each of us will be accountable for what we do in this life, the word tells us. Then you'll be able to test and prove what Yahweh's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The mind of Messiah... We must have to do Yahweh's will. You see, natural man uh, is not spirit-led. It's not spirit-led. He may use the spirit to draw us, but the spirit hasn't indwelled yet. And it takes a spirit-led mindset to see the need to follow Yahshua. Those who can't will argue from ignorance because... Their carnal mind is blind to the ways of the word. Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against Elohim, it is not subject, here we go again, to the law of Elohim. This is in Romans. You know, Paul has a lot to say about obedience in Romans. 
and Yahweh's statutes. It's, it's all, I don't know how anybody can argue against that. But that's the first thing they'll tell you. They'll tell you, oh, you don't have to believe the law is important today. That was Old Testament. That was for Israel. Well, I guess they just haven't dug very deep, have they? They're still on the surface. They're still in a superficial phase. They haven't even opened the Bible, <laughs> let alone understood what it's all about. But your mind is not subject to the law of Elohim, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please Elohim. But you are not in the flesh. So the flesh is totally different from the spirit as far as attitude and as far as uh, getting in line with the word. But in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of Elohim dwell in you. Now, if any man has not the spirit of Messiah, he is none of his. What does that tell you? It says that you don't have the spirit. You're outside. You're outside of Yahweh and Yahshua. You're not, you're not even in. You're not even in with them. The differences between men and women is a fascinating subject. And many spend lifetimes studying it, trying to understand. But the believer should be more challenged, far more challenged, because this is his destiny. By the innate, formidable differences between the natural person and having the mind of Messiah. Women are often accused of changing their minds. But, if, but in the, the business of living the spiritual life, we should change our minds and hearts to align with Yahshua's. That is a lifelong endeavor, brethren. It's sometimes very tough. But as we do and as we grow, it becomes somewhat easier and then easier and easier with rewards that will last for an eternity. What greater goal is that in life? You want to throw away our eternity. As the world play acts about Yahshua and his birth this time of year, let's take a look at the mind of the true Messiah. 1 Corinthians 2.11, For what man knows the things of man, save the spirit of man, which is in him? Even so the things of Elohim knows no man but the spirit of Elohim. So you have to have the spirit of Elohim to know what Yahweh is like, how he thinks. Verse 13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 2.14, for the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit, they're foolishness unto him. Oh, you don't believe that old Bible, do you? Uh, that, that's... <laughs> You know, that's just ancient uh, myth. You don't have to believe that today. This is the modern world. I guess things change, you know, over time. This is the modern world. Now we've got to be progressive, which is really retrogressive. It's really anti-Messiah. But, you know, you're, uh, you're back there in, in the Stone Age. That's the natural man. Their foolishness to him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is demonstrated in 2 Peter 2.12. But these are as natural brute beasts. That's how, that's how it's characterized in Scripture. Made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. They have no future if they remain in that corrupt stage. See, natural brutes, brute beasts in action, <coughs> excuse me, when you see the mayhem of rioting and destruction going on, 
That's what you're seeing. Natural man at his worst. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul quotes Isaiah 40.13 and then makes a statement concerning all believers. We have the mind of Messiah. The mind of Messiah. What's happening doesn't even compute with us because we're on a different wavelength. Having the mind of Messiah means sharing the plan, the purpose, and attitude of Yahshua. And it's what all believers need to possess to be fit for the resurrection. Otherwise, we're unfit for the resurrection. The desires of the natural man run counter to most all of what Yahshua was and taught. The carnal person has a great deal of difficulty overcoming, overcoming his nature. He needs help. He needs the spirit. He needs, first of all, to be humble. He needs to undergo the baptism to put to death that old man. He needs to take a whole different look at himself and about life through the Bible. Humans naturally desire things of the flesh. In the continuing effort to make salvation as easy and simple as possible, cushy as possible, there is the naive notion that all you need is just to mouth some special words and you are kingdom ready. You will be awarded salvation automatically. You'll instantly be a regenerated person. Now, show me book, chapter, and verse. I'd like to see that because you hear it all the time. It's got to be in here. No, it's not. It's not in here at all. Many claim to be saved, but they live like every other fleshly person on the sinful planet. As Paul says, if I am not careful, I may myself be a castaway. The one saved, always saved, is a bunch of bunk. You're saved at the resurrection. That's when you're saved. When you're raised from the dead or changed from physical to spirit, if you're alive, that's the saving he's talking about. They claim that they're saved, but they're not. Not till the end. Because at any time, they or we can turn from Yahweh. Any time. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen a number of times. Believers. I'm talking about believers. You just take something. Something that shows a weakness in the spirit that shouldn't have been there. And they're gone. Hundreds of passages tell us to strive against sin, to overcome daily, to labor, to be accepted and enter the kingdom. It's not autopilot. It takes effort. It takes a desire. It takes overcoming. Yasha showed us that. Look what he had to overcome. To be doers of the law in order to be approved. To live by every word that proceeds out of Yahweh's mouth. Sounds like a big order. And it doesn't come in one big effort. It takes a lifetime through all sorts of twists and turns. To do that. Well, Yahshua never said this walk is easy. He said the opposite. You will have tribulation. He called the narrow way. As opposed to the easy just coast along Broadway. That everybody else wants to have. To say but all just fall into place effortlessly and painlessly. Is one of the biggest heresies ever concocted. By Hasatan. It takes an obedient heart. 
his parables, his examples, his commands about personal change and overcoming the difficult aspects of this life. He went through it to show us how to go through it, to give us a little help, a little aid. All of it is superseded by the bogus belief that you're already saved. You don't need to worry about it. If that's so, what's the reason for Paul's injunction in Romans 12, 1 to 2? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of Elohim, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You sacrifice of yourself, you sacrifice of your time, your effort to serve, to serve others. By the mercies of Elohim, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto Elohim, which is a reasonable service. That's what's expected of you as a follower of Yahweh. And not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to think differently. You know, you're tempted by certain things, and if you follow it, as I remember one person telling me, I don't want to go there because once it's in here, I can't get it out. It's in there. So I don't even want to go there. Certain things that uh, can harm you spiritually. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of Elohim. But if they're already saved, as the majority think, what's the point, Paul? You're just mouthing a bunch of words I'm just going to ignore. Having Yahshua's mind takes deliberate daily vigilance. It's not easy. It's hard. About what you're doing and thinking at all moments. Spiritual transformation is not a part-time job. It's not a passive exercise. You can't be asleep at the wheel, brethren. There's a story of a businessman who decided he wanted to have a landscape and garden that works, works automatically. He, uh, he wanted everything to take care of itself. He doesn't have to do anything to it, but it, you know, it, it uh, grows great and produces fruit and uh, Cuts its own grass, I guess. And uh, so he hired a, uh, a horticulturist who is very skilled at growing things, which, you know, I guess they are because that's their study. Because his business was busy and he traveled a lot, he wanted his garden and landscaping to be zero maintenance. He insisted on automatic irrigation, auto fertilization, permanent weed control, and auto everything. He thought, ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I can afford it. I'll do it. She listens to all he wanted and then stopped him and said, listen, there's one thing we need to get straight before we go any further. If there's no gardener, there's no garden. Unless we are alert in our daily walk, what's growing in our heart, what's growing in the heart of the newly converted could quite easily be snuffed out by the weeds of the world. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Tend to your spiritual life daily. Don't quench the spirit. Each of us is master and responsible for his, his or her own life. And that's a beautiful thing about life. He always leaves it up to us. You can do it, or you don't have to do it. You can follow me, you don't have to follow me. But the rewards are going to depend on what you do, either good or bad. So you have it your way. What's that one advertisement, have it your way? I've forgotten what they're advertising, but... Over and over again, have it your way. You deserve it. Revelation 14, 13. And the voice from heaven saying unto me, Right blessed are the dead which 
die in Messiah from henceforth, yea, with the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. That's always very uh, sobering, I think, to think that what we do now is going to be the record of our life for eternity. Now, hopefully, we repent of the bad things so that we're, you know, we have an opportunity for eternal life. Those last five words are pregnant with implications. What we do on earth becomes our, our record. It's a world of diminishing personal responsibility out there. Nevertheless, we are accountable for everything we do and say. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat to be awarded for how we lived. Knowing the terror of Yahweh, we persuade men. Terror of Yahweh. I don't think there's enough fear of Yahweh anymore. Not like there should be. But you wait. There will be fear when he sends his son to take control of this world. Yahweh is no nonsense and his words are true and real. Our duty as believers seeking a heavenly city is to align with and reflect the mind and attitude and nature of Messiah Yahshua. In that he sent Yahshua, he was so respectful and loving of us. He said, look, these are what I've commanded in my word. Now, he knew it wasn't going to be easy. So he sends Yahshua to show us how to live those things. I would have loved to follow Yahshua around as he went from city to city, town to town, house to house, talking to people, healing people, discussing the word, debating with the naysayers. I would have loved to have been there watching him. It just, it would just blow your mind, I'm sure. But some of the things he did were simple. He showed love. He showed love and never had a care for himself at all, ever. He got up in the morning, probably kicked Peter, James, and John. Come on, guys, get up. We're leaving. We're going to go to the world now. I'm going to show them my father. And they probably thought, oh, here we go. Because they didn't quite understand. <laughs> they didn't realize who really realized. Now, Peter kind of said he did, but realized who Yasha was. But uh, they may have known it, but not really understood the impact of it. He's our guide through the weeds of this world. We can only reach the Father through the Son. Yasha said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. His very nature, his very, well, his very name means Yah's salvation. My father is salvation, and I'm here to represent that. But if you go around calling him something else, some other name, you shun this vital truth that is at the core of the scriptures. Yahweh is salvation. I am his representative on earth. My name stands for him. What he is. You make up some other name or follow some Latinized Greek name, there's no meaning. There's nothing there. You've already divided off that truth. You cut that truth off. The Jews who reject Yahshua as Messiah need to know there's no salvation without him, and he already came. It doesn't matter what flavor of Jewishness you are, Orthodox, Reformed, care, right? It doesn't matter. You don't accept Yahshua as Savior. If you don't, you'll miss the resurrection. 
when his spirit gathers his elect. The resurrection, the first resurrection, is the prize. These are the people that will get the better rewards because they go through it now, find Yahweh finds them acceptable and rewards them for the tough times that we go through that uh, are going to test us. 1 John 2.23, Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See, one, one and the same. You can't approach Yahweh without his Son. He is the go-between. He is the Dabar in the Old Testament, the spokesman for Yahweh. Acts 4.12 neither uh, says about Yahshua, neither is there any salvation in any other name, for there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Does his name matter? Does salvation matter? You decide. Hebrews 7.24, but this man, because he continued ever, has an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto Elohim by him. See, he come unto him by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for us. We rely on him and he'll even intercede for us in things that we lack. John 10.9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go out in and out and find pasture. So names matter, brethren. Names matter. Here, Yahshua's name is tied directly to his identity. And that is why we must worship only in Yahweh's name. In Romans 13, 14, Paul told us to put on Messiah and don't worry about fleshly things. Messiah is more important than anything else. Yahshua told us to be like himself, Matthew eleven twenty nine. What was he like? What did he live for on earth? What were his goals? First, he lived to serve his father, Yahweh. That was his main goal. Yahweh sent him there. John three sixteen. he sent his only begotten son. So his son was there with the father. Yahweh says, you go down to that planet, you show these people how to live. You show these people what's right. You show these people how to change their lives, how to be obedient. So he did. That's what he did. Oh, by the way, you're also going to have to be killed for this because there are a bunch of rotten sinners down there. You've got to change hearts. But through that death, they will then have a chance for eternal life. How can you serve Yahweh if you're consumed with your own wants, putting the idolatry of self before Yahweh? And that's the biggest idol there is, self. Me. Me. I get in the way of everything because I've got that idolatry in me. I want to do everything for me. Easy to understand, difficult to accomplish without a regenerate heart. You have to have a heart that's changed. The actual doing is the hard part of transformation of the mind. Yasha showed us how to obey Yahweh how to communicate with the Father, how to please the Father by living his precepts. And we get some clear and important truths from John 17, verse 1. These words spake Yahshua and lift up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. And as, as you have given him power over the flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Yahweh chooses a pool of people. He calls a pool of people 
Yahshua then chooses in that pool those that will receive everlasting life. Through his spirit, he calls. We see that happening today. We see that happening for those who want to come to the truth. Yahweh calls them. Yahweh finishes their faith, basically. Or Yahshua finishes their faith. As you have given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true Elohim and Messiah Yahshua, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, Yahshua said. I finished the work that you gave me to do. Completed. Over. The key passage is verse 4. I have glorified you on earth. What else did he do? Well, keep reading. Verse 6. I've manifested your name unto the men which you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave me them. And... They have kept my, my word. Now they have known all the things whatsoever you have given me are of thee, of him. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from you, and they have believed that you did send me. They got it. They understood it all. They knew what he was for. And why he came. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. But for them which has you have given me. For they are thine. And all mine are yours. And all yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And now I am no more. This is right before you had to suffer. I am no more in the world. But these are in the world. And I come to you Holy Father. Keep through your own name. Those whom you have given me. That they may be one as we are. The name unifies. The name brings us together. We're all under his name. In verse 20, Yahshua talks about you. He says, neither pray I for these alone, his present followers. I I don't just pray for them. But for them, that's you and me, also which shall believe on me through the word. Why did he pray this? Verse 21. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you have sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them. That they may be one even as we are. That's the mind of Messiah, which is the mind of Yahweh, and should be the mind of his followers. Same thing. I in them, and you in me, and that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and has, uh, and has loved them as you love me. Yahshua lived a very uncluttered lifestyle, simple life. He could have had anything he wanted, but he didn't come there for that purpose. What he wanted is followers of Yahweh. He could have had unimaginable fortune and fame, But he had no such desire for that. He knew that was fleeting. He knew that was temporary. He knew that was worldly. That wasn't his purpose and goal. He was totally focused on the mission. This is us as well when we have the mind of Messiah. The things of this world don't have the same allure as maybe they did before we were converted. Yahshua's life was never about him. Satan tempted him with fame, glory, and power three times. You can have this, you can have this, you can have this. I'll give it to you right now. 
He wasn't interested. That was the wrong thing to tempt Yahshua with. He wanted none of it. I wonder why Satan didn't understand that. Didn't he know Yahshua? Yeah, he probably thought, well, it's worth a shot. I convinced a third of the angels to go with me. I must be pretty good. I'll try him too. If I, get, I mean, that's the prize. If I can get him to turn away from his father, oh my goodness, I'd have the universe. Probably thought. He didn't understand the mind of Messiah. Did you ever read anywhere that he desired anything for himself? That Yahshua did anything purely out of self-interest or self-love? I can't think of a single instance. Did he ever go shopping for a luxurious robe and patent leather sandals? I don't find that in scripture. Did he ever get the feeling that he was hiding something in his interactions with others? I never got that feeling. He was right out there, open and direct in everything he did. So how specifically do we serve Yahweh? First, we must remove the obstacles. The biggest obstacle standing in our way is self, and the desire to satisfy our wants, our needs, that's the prevailing, preeminent, predominant, paramount idolatry we have to learn to overcome. There's nothing wrong with nice things. And Yahshua had apparently a, a nice cloak that the Roman soldiers divided up. There's nothing wrong with that. If it's good quality, yeah, that's, might as well have it. It's going to last longer anyway. But when you go overboard to exalt self, that's the problem. Idolatry is anything we put before Yahweh, anything that comes between us and him. In this case, it's our natural pulls. The first of the Ten Commandments is the most important, impacting of all. You will have no other mighty ones before me. That includes self. That includes any of the other myriad of idols, uh, anything out there that you put before me. You uh, spend time with that, in other words, and not time with me. No other mighty ones before me. If you follow that command, you won't need to agonize over doing what Yahshua would do because he does the will of his father. Self is the biggest idol we know. And the natural man worships on the altar of self. He's out there chasing every, every day, trying to gain, trying to exalt, trying to be famous, trying to be important, powerful. By virtue of the first sin in the garden, the door was open for each of us to be a potential rival to Yahweh. Eve put herself first, hoping to make what Satan tempted come true. You shall be a mighty one. Whoa, wow, this I got to have. Why did Satan come to Eve? We know he was beautiful, Ezekiel 28. He also is a nethash, a whisperer, a schmoozer. Slick and devilish. He convinced a third of the angels, so this untested woman named Eve should be a pushover, a piece of cake. And she was. Her desire to exalt self was too powerful. Nothing has changed. Self is the same thing most struggle with today. How do we deal with the natural pull? If everyone lived by what we find in Philippians 2.4, We'd have a transformed world. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's nothing wrong to look, you know, to satisfy some things that you need and so forth. But notice it says, but look every man also on the things of others. 
spend some time helping others, doing for others, living for others, especially those that have special needs, those that can't do for themselves. That's important. Serving others is going to change your life because that's the mind of Messiah. You feel good, you know, when you do something, sacrifice something. You feel good about yourself. You feel good that you have done something good. A person who has himself as his best friend is a very lonely individual. Miserable, they're unhappy. The more we work for the welfare of others, the happier and more content we're going to be. What's wrong with that? That's the way to go, isn't it? Do for others, you do for yourself. The loneliest people are the most self-focused people living a most miserable life. Everything is about me. And there's no percentage in that, brethren. Pay attention to others and their needs. Serve them and you won't have to worry about yourself. That's an embodiment of what Yasha was all about. Always, every day, up serving others. Stopping by, helping someone. Answering someone's questions. Healing people. All the time. That's what he did. He's our example. How much do we do? He was always putting others first. And it didn't matter the circumstances. He was willing to be an aid no matter what. If you're serving others, you have no time to think about yourself or dwell on yourself or your own issues. We also serve Yahweh by overcoming our vanity and the need to feel important. Sacrificing the desire to be first. Surrendering the need to have our own way all the time. Our own way. Because I'm important. Subjecting the desire to accumulate. Accumulate. All these things go away. Eventually, overcoming the need to have the last word. All of these are natural instincts that put instincts that put self first and a true servant can't be overcome by them, or you're not a true servant. The monster called self must be conquered in the believer's life. It has to be. If that is not happening, then we need a humbling reassessment of what we're living for and why. We seek Yahweh not only because he commands it, but also because it's the only way to happiness and fulfillment. He lays it out there. He says, do this and you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. You'll know that you'll have life everlasting. He said in Leviticus 22, 32, I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am Yahweh, which hallow you. Set apart your life for him and he will in turn put you in a very special place with him. That's the promise that Yahshua brought. That's what he said. That's what he taught. Anything else is rubbish. Anything else won't last. It'll leak out like a sieve. But that's a promise from Yahshua, who has the selfless mind we all want to have. So as we continue on in this faith, let's grow in this faith. Let's serve others. Let's try to have the mind of Messiah which means not the mind of ourselves. To be in that coveted special place with him starts with immersion into Yahshua's name. There are ten reasons I found why every believer needs to be baptized. There are churches that argue you don't need to be baptized. Oh, it's just an outward, outward expression of an inward change. No, it's a lot more than that. Ten reasons every true believer needs to be baptized. Because being born of water and the spirit is essential for entering the kingdom. How about that for a reason? Except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. John 3, 5. 
It's necessary. Because baptism is linked to the forgiveness of sins. Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the remission, that's forgiveness of sins. When you're baptized, those sins are washed away. Acts 22.6. Because Yahshua gave the example for us. Another reason for baptism. Matthew 3.13-15. to 15. If it was right for a sinless Savior to be baptized, no sins to wash away, but if it was right for him to fulfill all righteousness, how much more is it requisite for us? We're full of sins. How much more is it important for us? It's, uh, let's look at number four. Because baptism is coupled with faith and linked to salvation. Yahshua said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Two things. Mark 16, 16. Because baptism is essential to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38 and Acts 19.3-5. To get the Spirit after baptism. If we don't have the Spirit, we're not raised from the dead. Got to have it. Because in being baptized, we model the burial of Yahshua. Underwater, buried. That's why we don't sprinkle or pour. Rantizo or chio in the Greek but baptizo, which means to overwhelm with water, cover up with water. That is how Yahshua was buried. They didn't just put him in a little dirt on him. They put him in a tomb underground. We're buried with him, Romans 6, 4. Because baptism, in baptism, we act out the resurrection of Yahshua. Same verse, 6, 4. We are raised with him, raised out of the water, raised as Yahshua was raised in type. Because in baptism, we mark the formal beginning of a new life in Messiah. Romans 6, 4 to 5. After baptism, we walk in newness of life. I always say, you know, that you never will be any cleaner than you are spiritually when you come out of the water baptism. Never any cleaner. All your sins are gone. What a feeling. What a feeling. Because in baptism, we come into Yahshua Messiah where there is salvation and blessing. Galatians 3.27. And finally, before we draw near in our service as priests, we must be washed. Remember the priests had to go into the pool of Siloam, wash, scrub up, get really clean, put on linens, pure linen, white and clean, and then go do the service of Yahweh? We have to be washed too. Spiritually speaking, we have to be washed. Uh, Hebrews 10.22 calls pure water. Let us draw near to Elohim with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Without baptism, our sins remain. They still stick to us. We've got to wash them off. Without immersion, we have no endowment of the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, we can't be changed to spirit and raised into Yahshua's kingdom. So it's the most important step I tell people that you'll ever make in life. This is the start of a new life in Yahweh. You're granted his blessing. You follow him all the way.